Welcome to the five things this week in social. This is the Webby award-winning podcast that looks at five hot topics from around the world of social data analytics, content, and tech to give you the full rundown of what you need to know this week. If you are a marketer, an advertiser, or a creator, or anyone who makes a living using social platforms, then you are in the right place. Today, back on the pod, we have Ankit Vahia, Gray Health and Wellness's Chief Strategy Officer. Hello, Ankit. Hey, everybody. Excited to be here again. Ankit, question for you. Are you a morning person or a night owl? I used to be a night owl. At this point, I just don't think I know anymore because I'm not a morning person till I have coffee. And once I have coffee, I'm a morning person. So I don't know. Make of that what you will. So there's definitely an on button for your morning routine. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And we have first time to the five things, associate data strategist, Katie O'Brien. Same question to you, Katie. I think I would challenge that and say I'm more of a late afternoon person. You know, the afternoon sun's coming in the window. I'm not for morning or for night, I'd say. All right. Four or five o'clock is your prime time. Yeah, exactly. I like that. Well, I'm Joey Scarillo, and I am very much a night person by nature. But like you, Ankit, I am reluctantly a morning person, or becoming one at least. Okay, here are the five things. First up, Ankit gets into a New York Times report that looks at the effects of social media on a teen's brain. Then Katie talks Tinder, who is rolling out a new tier of membership for those desperate for love. Then Ankit chats ChatGPT, who now have conversation and image identification abilities. And apparently, they're surprisingly good. Then Katie tells us about Reddit launching an opportunity for money-making by turning golden upvotes into cash. And finally, Ankit gives us the need to know about Big Pharma going into TikTok. All right, that's the five things. Let's dive right in with the first one. Ankit, tell us about what you learned from the New York Times. So it's a very interesting article. The idea about what uh, social media is going to mean for this generation of kids growing up, especially young adolescents, teenagers, kids just getting to that point. It's It's been a hot topic for a while. No one knows what's going to happen. And this article takes what I actually think is, for once, a more objective and data and science-driven approach towards this. It acknowledges the fact that there's a lot of fear around social media and bullying and the impact and anxiety skyrocketing. There's mental health-related ER visits. But what's most unique about what they say and their perspective is that it's not just social media, but it's at that point in their lives where these brains are maturing. You know, you have these core emotions developing, your relationship with your peers, peer pressure, impulsivity, emotion. It's a very interesting time for kids in general. And now you have this first fully digital generation, right? Even if you think about stuff like AI and chat GPT, it's going to be native to their lives and the way they grow and the way they are going to come to terms with adulthood and relationships, all these things. And so what they found is when they started monitoring brain activity, whether it's by imaging, monitoring, constant monitoring, 12-year-olds, for example, who frequently check their social media accounts actually experience changes in the part of the brain associated with social rewards, right? Now, there's nothing inherently surprising about that. 
because that's what social media does, validates or invalidates things going on with kids and their lives. But what's interesting is there's a move towards this aspect around how social media and the access can actually rewire synapses and the neural makeup and things like that. Now, there's a lot of study going on. There's a big, you know, adolescent brain cognitive development study that the National Institute of Health is sort of undertaking to see actually what's going to happen with social media over time as kids go into young adulthood or from this adolescent phase. But that was tweens in general are obsessing about their social life when you sit in school and the lunch table dynamics and all of it. So none of that is new. Like developments is very normal. I think there's perhaps a commentary out there, oh, kids are brain development is changing. The development isn't changing, but what's changing is the way these adolescent brains are taking in feedback, social cues, and how the brain is perhaps reacting to those. And the issue isn't social media per se, but it's it's so incessant and nonstop. That's the real critical part here, which is, I think, a very key takeaway that the kids' brains, the young brains are developing the way they need to. But the feedback they're getting isn't normal. It's just like you go to school, you have something happen, you come home, deal with it, go back the next day, you're fresh. It is nonstop. And I think that's what makes this article interesting. It's looking at a real objective view of normal brain development and social media being a source of stimuli that has this impact. And I think as marketers, when we look at something like this, you know, when you work in the space, whether it's retail or CPG or any of those things, to keep in mind that that's perhaps something we can exercise in terms of modulating feedback to a specific sort of demographic. If our target audience are these adolescents or adolescent parents, maybe some of the responsibility lies with us with how we want to manage the rollout of information. They don't have to be 24 hours. Maybe it's gated within a certain time frame to manage some of that feedback and information that's going to these young brains, which I just think is a new way to look at it where you start gating the information based on your audience and how they're going to cope with it. Echo Wonka was saying about how it's definitely more honest than what I usually see for these headlines. I'm young enough that I was growing up and these headlines were about me in middle school and high school. So I definitely remember that first wave of super fear-mongery headlines about Instagram is ruining your child's life and being the child in question. I didn't find that totally to be the case. It was nice to see something that wasn't so shock value and broke down the science in a really manageable way. And I thought it was honest in the fact that it didn't have a lot of data, actually, because there just isn't that much data to be had. So I was impressed that they weren't trying to, you know, spin the numbers they had to make anything sound more stringent or true than it was. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. At least, you know, this time around, Again, like you said, not fear mongering, but just giving just the facts, man, just the facts. All right, let's jump over to an app that we don't talk about, I think, nearly enough on this podcast. Katie, you found this headline. I'm really excited about it. Tell us about what's going on with Tinder rolling out a new tier of membership. Yeah, so this one also jumped out to me because I feel like having listened to this podcast quite a few times, I thought, you know, we might as well mix it up. We got to get out of the big few socials here. So Tinder announced really recently this new tier of membership called Tinder Select. The same as its other subscriptions, it's monthly payment, but this time it costs $499 a month, which is the big difference between this tier and the previous tiers, which can cost $6 a month, $20 a month, depending how you pay for it. Um, but this time it's really leaning into exclusivity. So it's only accessible to the top 1% of what the app calls its quote unquote most active users. What it uses to differentiate those users isn't completely clear. It's definitely called the top 1% for a reason. 
So the features that you get with this are the ability to message people who you haven't actually matched with twice a week and for others to be able to see your unblurred profile, regardless of their subscription status in their likes you grid, prioritization in their grid, and to be able to view and be viewed by the most sought after profiles on the app. So there is kind of a way of making sure your profile is legit in order to qualify. You have to meet a few standards. You have to list a few interests. You have to have your photos be verified, your relationship intent listed, et cetera. So Tinder's definitely doing a few things to try and make sure that um, nobody's getting into this tier that shouldn't be there or that has an illegitimate account. But I just thought this was kind of the latest major monetary astro platform. I know recently on the podcast, I believe it was covered Elon's, you know, announcement that X might be considering having all of its users pay a monthly subscription fee. So this isn't really coming out of the blue or anything, just the sheer amount of money that makes this interesting, especially since there are a lot of apps out there, you know, the more elite daters like the league, there's Raya places kind of already exist. So it definitely begs the question, like, who is asking for this? Who is this for? Why does this exist? And what purpose does it actually serve in the Tinder ecosystem? And it's mirroring the idea of the once coveted blue check. It could potentially just be another status symbol that's free for the buying. Also notable here is that this kind of breaks down the need for mutual consent for conversation on the app, which is I would consider a very important thing when online dating. You need to both like the other person's profile in order to have a conversation. So this is the first time I'm seeing this kind of mutual understanding being broken down where there's only consent on one party side needed to have these conversations. So definitely we'll be looking out for any potential for creepy behavior and how that's going to be monitored by the app and what's going to change as far as quality of experience on the app going forward and kind of what you sacrifice when you allow people to pay to play for these kind of things. Yeah, when you said premium, that really jumped out to me. Ankit, I'm curious what you think of a very premium version of Tinder and what other marketers can take away from such a high tier. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So for one, I grew up, well, I guess I got married and had relationships outside of the online dating world, which it is what it is. I'm aging myself, I understand. But, you know, why not? So just from the outside looking in as someone who hasn't used any of these apps, I think, Katie, as you put it, there's like the Raya's and these like premium apps that have been around for a long time. I'm sure that's stuff that we don't, not, the general public doesn't even have access to based on networking and things like that. I think for me, this purely as a marketer, this is Tinder's expansion strategy. It seems like a bit of an idea balloon is let's put it out there. Because they have this massive database right now, right? They have all these users. It's the most go-to anywhere in the world, you know, you can get Tinder. They're like, okay, if we have this massive database of people all over the world, you have a premium tier. Let's see if it sticks. Let's see if it sticks in the US. Let's see if it sticks outside of the US. And if we can start just simply building upon the equity we have. I would just be curious to see how long and how successful this is and if it lasts. And if this 500 then has a $300 tier as well or a $250 tier coming in. I think as a marketer, you know, there's some strategist sitting somewhere going, guys, let's give it a shot. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, we don't lose our existing customer base. I don't know. Maybe I'm a little too cynical about where this could go, but that's where my head went. Yeah, so you think they're going with a little bit of a test and learn approach here. Well, that's interesting. We'll certainly keep an eye on it. I love talking about apps that we don't talk about very often. So Katie, thank you for bringing this one to us. Okay, Ankit, let's chat about ChatGPT. They just launched conversation and image identification abilities. These features seem to be going really well, seem to be really good. Talk to us about it. This was actually fascinating. And I think 
this could low-key be a game changer, especially in things like healthcare. I think just to quickly sum it up, ChatGPT now, I think based on the app and based on a bit of a subscription, has a clear image identification and a conversation feature. I think the key word here being conversation is important. They sort of divided into this idea of there's the mouth and there's the eye. So it's almost bringing to life a very real version of AI that we've seen in movies and that, you know, every sci-fi dystopian feature has started off as, hey, you, you give them the ability to have a conversation and talk to you. And, you know, it's, it's the beginning of the end. So I think the interesting part is something like this, an article like this is either, oh, wow, this is incredible. Our lives are going to get better. Things are going to get better. The way we look for information or it's like, oh, man, let's start uh, building that bunker already, which I think is interesting. I think when it comes to the voice aspect of it, it's not like Siri or Alexa. There's a true conversational style and they've actually use sampling of human voices based on sample speech, you know, with voice actors. And just the way chat GPT and, you know, I'm sure we've all used free version online, you can have a conversation with the software to help answer any questions. The voice is meant to recreate that very quickly. It's natural voice, which I think is interesting. It's also able to have more normal chats, not just about specific topics or, you know, conversations with an end goal in mind, which is perhaps what Alexa and Siri are more known for, but just sort of talking about things in general. You know, an example that they cite is an interesting one about how it explained the user was a six-year-old. And so it's definitely in its alpha phase, it's in development, it's it still has that lag, it still has, you know, some issues, it's not as crisp, it's not as clear. But I think it's important to know this is a machine learning system, it's only going to get better, it's only going to get stronger, it's only going to get smoother. I think the other interesting one is visual feature, which is, you know, the Google camera has a rudimentary version where you point it at something, it tells you what it is, where to buy it. But this is, again, action oriented. And I think that's what chat GPT is going to become a true solution oriented system not just a Q&A system. You know, for example, what they cite here is how do you fix a broken hose? and Or, you know, how do I cook this? Or, you know, what do I do with it? But there's even some examples of how it can be some medical issues. Like if it's a rash or something and an injury, it's able to actually either identify it in some way or say visit a healthcare professional, which, you know, I'll get to that in a second, has massive, massive implications on all our lives, to be honest. But, you know, there's also fun stuff like tic-tac-toe or crosswords where it's still evolving. It's not where it needs to be. But I think the goal is the system is out. They have the basics in place. Now, like everything with AI, it's going to learn and learn and learn and, you know, become, I think, people's go-to for advice along the way. Now, I think it's interesting just very naively speaking, how quickly they've gone here. It just feels like last year is when Chad GPT became a thing and everyone's like, oh my God, it's the best thing ever. And now it's freaking talking and telling you what to do and helping you out as an actual assistant, which is amazing. But it's like, okay, at what point does this start having a real impact on jobs and work and healthcare and things like that? Just simply put, healthcare, this can be misleading or it can be incredibly effective. And this now it's going to come down to the rules and regulations that are put in. You know, health is always a tricky one. Something that may look like a cyst could be a tumor. Something that looks like a simple cut could be a bacterial infection. Is AI going to not talk about any of that? I think that's very, very important. And, and, you know, that's the flip side. But the positive side is, can you train something like this to help people cope with things like loneliness and isolation and no one understands me and, you know, bring people along the way? I think there's just a lot of applicability that we need to figure out. And I think a lot of rules, regulations, things need to be put in place to manage something this potent that can be incredibly helpful, but at the same time can lead people astray very, very quickly. So I, I think there is a major watch out here. There's no doubt it's fascinating. 
of where it is. Do I think it's the end of the world? No, but it's going to come down to how well and how responsible open AI is as well in putting this out there. You know, not just, hey, the more we put out, the better our final sale price will be, but I think there's a bigger humanity play that needs to go in. And as a marketer, I think this just becomes a very effective way for brand placement or elevating brand function, bringing real world examples to life when something may not just be evident to any of those out there, you know, whether it be a CPG, whether it be technology, whether it be an electronic device, just a nice way to bring some of that in. I think a cool thing here is as our population gets older, there's increasing incidence of something like dementia, cognitive dysfunction. So, you know, helping people where it's hard to help right now, this system could be the future. We could all be aging much better because of this system that's being developed where it could connect us to doctors, proactively point out dangers, help track cognitive development. You know, you can set up a system that helps you track that. So, I mean, I could go on and on talking about how I think this could play a very important role in the future of digital health. But yeah, I just... The future's coming fast. It is coming fast. It feels like it's coming faster every single week. Katie, what to you jumps out here? And what do you think marketers and advertisers can use from these new AI tools to make our work smoother, better, faster? What immediately jumped out to me, especially when looking at these articles, is how OpenAI is going to use all of this data they're getting. You know, with AI becoming more multimodal, they're they're kind of giving it the eyes and the ears. I believe they haven't really spoken on their policy as far as the auditory data and visual data, how they're going to be using that. So I'm definitely waiting on that. And I feel like as it comes onto people's apps in the next couple of weeks, they're probably going to have to release some more information on that. So I'll definitely be keeping my eyes out for that. As far as use cases, I feel like visual application is very interesting to me, just like maybe more as a fun exercise and strategy than anything. I do think taking pictures of different products, brand landscapes and stuff and the visuals and getting the application to describe them and, you know, just using it as a thought starter to see, you know, what terms and words that the application will use to describe could definitely get some gears turning at the beginning of any strategy process. Yeah, Katie, that is really interesting. We're certainly going to keep an eye on all this AI stuff because like we said earlier, it is moving fast and it changes every single day. All right, let's jump over to Reddit. We love Reddit here. Katie, thanks for bringing this one forward as well. Reddit launches opportunities for money-making by turning gold upvotes into cash. Everybody loves cash. Who doesn't love cash? Katie, tell us about it. Absolutely. So um, this new program is called the Reddit Contributor Program. And contributor refers to anything. I thought this was interesting. It's not just the posts you make, but I believe it's the comments you make as well. So anything they're terming a contribution. So the way this works is that Redditors can apply. And if they're accepted, they can earn some IRL money each month for the gold they get on their posts, on their comments, and less directly by the karma they've earned. So it's a little bit of a complicated system here. Simply, the more gold and karma one receives on content, the more money one makes, but a little bit more nuanced. You have to meet a certain threshold of karma and gold earned in the past year to cash in on any earnings and be qualified. And there are two tiers if you do qualify. So there's contributors and top contributors based on the amount of karma you have earned. And there are different pay rates, which I found interesting. So if you're simply a contributor, you make 90 cents per single gold and top contributors make a dollar. In order to be accepted for this, you have to be over 18, living in the U.S. You have to have an account in good standing that's lasted for over 30 days and you have to complete a verification process for identity. And also interesting is that no NSFW content can receive monetization, I'm assuming. So there's no kind of unregulated OnlyFans economy popping up. 
but that is something they made very clear as soon as they kind of let this information out. I thought this was interesting that Reddit was getting in on this creator economy. You know, it's been booming on YouTube, Instagram, TikTok for years. More recently, X launched the idea that over the summer, verified users can start making a cut of ad revenue. So this is by no means new, but Reddit is popping on this trend that we've seen on all the other socials for a while. But the reason Reddit may be so late to this is that Reddit has a very different purpose and a different vibe than most of the other socials. And there's some concern that this creator economy will change the ethos of the community on Reddit. I'm not like a super, super avid Reddit user, but when I do use it, one of the things I like is that I trust what people say on there more than on other applications because I know they're just saying it because they want to say it. There's nothing transactional or money motivated about it. But that is all going to change. This community could definitely, this based on just information sharing for the sake of information sharing and for community building, could definitely be easily polluted when the reason for posting something turns into something more transactional and for money. It is important to note, I think, that this news comes not long after the much-protested April announcement that Reddit would start charging for its API, which I believe it did start doing in July. Who knows like what is to come on this platform? It seems like it's really rapidly changing as far as money goes. So definitely something to keep an eye on and definitely something to monitor as far as are the posts on Reddit changing now that there's the potential to earn money on them, which is something people have noticed on X. I am aware of that. Yeah, Ankit, the Reddit community is an avid one. We know that. Do you think that this entrance into the creator economy will change behaviors of users, change incentives? And do you think ultimately it'll ruin Reddit? I struggle with this one. One, I think just from my perspective, I think Reddit has always maintained a certain, for lack of a better word, objectivity and neutrality in terms of what people post. The hope is I think something like this could further encourage that and encourage more engagement if people, if the people posting on Reddit continue to stay true to its ethos, I think this is this could be amazing because you're basically encouraging people to be more active Redditors and sharers of information and knowledge and all of that good stuff, which is I think I think amazing. You know, it's a creator economy, but one that's actually driven by substance than just shock value and aha and, you know, being a certain way. But you're right. It could absolutely blow up because if everyone's like, oh, no, you're not thinking content first, you're thinking money first now, that could very much change the sort of fundamental thread of what makes, I think, Reddit so, so powerful. But I'm not inherently a skeptic. So I will say I think this could actually be really good because the Redditors will be more willing and will see a payoff for sharing content. Yes. If there's one thing we know about Redditors, they will tell us what they think. We will know if they like this or if it has ruined Reddit for sure. Okay, let's jump into our fifth and final thing. Big Pharma goes big into TikTok. Ankit, this one is all you, my friend. Take it away. I don't think you're right. It's actually called Pharma Talk. Because that's the level of engagement Pharma is getting with TikTok. And I'll be honest, I knew Pharma is big into TikTok, but it seems more prolific than I could have imagined. And I think what's interesting is this fact that people spend 145 minutes a day on TikTok and open the app 20 times. So it is an absolute massive opportunity for anyone looking to engage. And, you know, the Pharma engagement they're getting is not small. It's Bristol Myers, Amgen, Astellas, Gilead. The big sort of rivalry right now are between two migraine drugs, Nurtec and Nurtec, which is from Pfizer, your Brelvi from Abvi. You've probably seen the Serena Williams ads online for the migraine drug as well, going big into TikTok because it's a young audience. It's young women who tend to deal with migraines. And that sort of become their primary way. What is interesting here is what 
kind of really started the big TikTok movement at Pharma was a menopause drug from this company called Astellas, which is, you know, one of the big farmers. And they started a movement by getting these influencers to talk about hot flashes. And they have a blockbuster drug on their hands. It's the first hot flash treatment for women who are menopausal. They got like 1.8 billion views this year so far, which and was only 300 million last year. You're talking about a six-fold increase in engagement of these menopause and hot flash tips that we're putting out there. And I think it comes down to one very simple thing, is that TikTok algorithm is phenomenal. It's really able to fine-tune and get those audiences in there. And when it comes to menopause, get to those women, be very specific. And I think that's what advertisers and marketers and pharma companies like. The other thing about TikTok, and I think this is low-key an X factor, is there are almost 5 million healthcare professionals on there who are self-identified. So who knows how many are there who are not self-identifying as healthcare professionals. So it is a very targeted, it's a very robust customer base where people are now seeking information because the engagement is absolutely amazing. You know, like my two cents, this is what I think Facebook and pharma tried to do back for many, many years and Twitter, and they just weren't as effective. And I think TikTok sort of has uh, what it's done. And of course, there's the Gen Zers where it's a big playground for everyone. So just from a pure data targeting perspective, TikTok is phenomenal. Engagement is amazing for everyone. The main reason why I think everyone, pharma loves TikTok is pharma's always done big TV and TikTok is video. So it's a very clear translation. You're basically saying it's the same format. It's shorter. It's cheaper to make. They, they also give companies the ability to uh, modulate engagement, right? So for example, you can... Uh, take out comments. So the big issue in pharma and social media is like, for example, if you're taking Advil, you know, I took Advil and I lost all my hair, LOL. You know, you put that from a regulatory perspective, pharma has to take that very seriously. So you will have someone call you, did you really have the side effect? Is this for real? And you're like, I'm just messing around. But TikTok can disable comment. It's just content that, that people can engage with. You can avoid side-by-side placements. The community guidelines are strict. So there's an inherent regulation that makes pharma very comfortable to put more content out there. And that's actually very, very important. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's one of the few that's perhaps not become like, you know, Elon Musk and X and mired in politics and opinions and very divisive. It's just remained fun and people keep having fun there. What is interesting is it, it there's a report that it drives nine times more engagement than Facebook. The people who use TikTok, 73% of them actually have a strong brand loyalty and connection. So farmers like in a competitive world, let's do that. And I think as the population ages, drugs become more diverse for different groups. I think TikTok is starting to become that one universal place where everyone has fun and you're not engaging out of stress and, oh my God, what's this commentary? Oh man, some, you know, am I going to be dinged for being on Twitter? Is my friend going to... No, everyone just loves TikTok. I think they've stayed out of the fray so far. I think as a marketer, it's amazing because the big issue in marketing and pharma is how do you get real people to engage to bring the brand forward in a very real world way and not just your ads that have actors and stuff. And I think TikTok is critical because eventually treatment experience is going to be a bigger deal than we realize because all the drugs are going to be as effective beyond the point. So where does the experience come in? I think what TikTok does phenomenally well is make that experience very real, very relatable. And I think just we should do more and more TikTok-based content out there.
Yeah, bringing the fun back to pharma. What a great playground. Like you said, it's video based and it's just a great way for, you know, people to engage and interact with these pharma brands. Katie, I'm curious, you know, the way Ankit set this up was it sounds like a perfect match between big pharma and TikTok. What do you think? Do you think it's a match made in online heaven? I'm a little bit of two minds about it. I do think there is something to having an app that is all fun and games. And at the end of the day, pharma is not what I would call fun and games. It's a little bit more serious. There's deeper implications as far as, you know, this isn't TikTok trend. This is a real drug that can do a lot of good or do a lot of damage. So on that side, I'm a little bit tentative, but I do trust that TikTok has a lot of good guidance and restrictions as far as advertising on it. And, you know, I do feel that I trust the restrictions made there that they're not going to be promoting anything dangerous or crazy and they're not going to allow any misinformation there. Um, And I definitely agree that with so many medical professionals taking to TikTok to share legitimate information and with more people using TikTok as kind of a Google interface, which is what you do when you look up, I just got diagnosed with XYZ. Can you tell me about this? It is a very approachable place to find medical information. So on that side, I definitely think this makes sense for pharma to get in there and promote their messaging with that. This is all very interesting. I love this conversation. And I've said this before, but I feel like we could always go on and do a whole other podcast about some of these topics. That does it for us today. If you don't already, be sure to follow us, share us, review us, like us, write to us with your questions, comments, concerns, points of interest or complaints, or just send us a thing you want us to discuss. You can do all of that by emailing us at podcasts at gray.com. Connect with us on Spotify by sharing your thoughts on the show. Just look for the Q&A field. And the topics discussed on this show are written and researched by the social and connections team at Gray New York with a big thanks this week to our panel, Ankit and Katie. Katie, join us again. Let's make it a thing. This podcast is produced by me, Joey Scarillo and Samantha Geller with post-production by Amanda Fuentes and Guy Rosemarin at Gramercy Park Studios. Marketing and communication support from Adrian Hopkins, Christina Hyde, and Jada Hines. Listen to the entirety of season four of Gray Matter, a podcast about ideas, as host Jason Connor and our Gray colleagues speak to founders, artists, and innovators about the napkin scribble that became their idea. You can find Gray Matter, a podcast about ideas, wherever you find this podcast. That's it for us. Thank you, listener. And please, as always, be social. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.